Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenna B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 118th episode of the Nauticast titled Shadow of a Doubt Part 4, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Davos 2 in which Davos sails Melisandre beneath Storm's End, where she gives birth to a beautiful beautiful baby boy with his dad's face. It's such a touching moment in A Song of Ice and Fire, isn't it? The miracle of life at work. I hope I take lots of pictures. <laughs> well, let's hope not. God, wow. I can't imagine <laughs> what that would bring. So, yes, this is going to be a barn burner episode, so hope you guys enjoyed who are watching live and those of you who are listening there afterwards. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our head of the king, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the Seven Seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Arch Mr. June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the other, the other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, who adds the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Harrow the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane to his title, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant, to the Hand of the King, Ladies Eve of Lyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelico, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons. Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Thedes and Gentle Thems. Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively, not serving as a spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldover, the waiter for T-Wow. A.A. Ron, Dampere of the Prophet and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town. Veneris of House Golgarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. And she's created some excellent works lately, so go ahead and check them out on her Twitter. Shama the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked Still in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, The Cadaver King and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils Wherein Every Count Votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Warren of Tampa Bay, who I don't have a story for this week, I'll get you one next week, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way, and our two newest members of the Small Council, again, two new members of the Small Council, the heir of House Tyrell, and Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Welcome, gentlemen, very much to the Small Council, and thank you. Thank you, all our counselors, as always, and a special welcome to the heir of House Tyrell and Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. 
and our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duck Egg novels, histories, interviews, the Windswinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, our small council proud soy boy of Summer Hall, defender of the fifth book and swing dancer with dragons, who asks... I have a question relevant to the current Davos chapter the cast is covering. Could also be related to a future Davos chapter, imminently to be covered over the course of four cast episodes. <laughs> Sir Courtney challenges Stannis to single combat, and Stannis ultimately gives him his wish. Stannis does not choose one of the chattering magpies around for his champion. For his champion, he chooses the shadows. This, along with some other comments that Emmett made in the first episode on this chapter, got me thinking of how Stannis compares with the Mad King Aerys, who, in a different yet semi-comparable scenario, chose fire as his champion as opposed to spending resources in the form of manpower, or risking their own person, both of these kings chose to wield the elements themselves so that they may pierce through the conventional armor of their foes and strike directly at their flesh. Stannis wielded magic itself, while the Mad King oft spoke of his fire with the perverse reverence that magic draws. While these examples clearly deal with two men with vastly different motivations behind their actions, I was wondering what you thought of Stannis' use of a champion in his Red Hawk and the Shadows, and how that compares with leaders like the Assorted Targaryens, who chose dragons and fire as their champions. And it's a really a thoughtful and well-put question. So what do you think, Jeff? What what do you make of this 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 trend of, of kings kind of blurring the line between my, my champion in combat versus the, the magical power of the elements themselves? Yeah, it's, it's a great subversion of what like a trial by battle is supposed to be right in a, in a Westerosi setting it's not supposed to be a knight or a lord or someone versus a natural element like fire or a dragon it's supposed to be knight versus knight or lord versus lord something we saw in Tyrion's trial by battle up at the in the Eyrie and what we saw again Tyrion's trial by battle in King's Landing with uh, Oberyn stepping in as Tyrion's champion and then Gregor Clegane as the uh, as the crown's champion I, it's it's kind of a perversion of the system of justice as it stands right now and it's a perversion of a system of justice that's not very good to begin with because we never hear of peasants, as we talked about in back in our, our episodes on the Game of Thrones, of peasants having the same rights as the nobility to call for a trial by battle or anything like that. This is simply a, a noble right. As fucked up as that right and that tradition is, it kind of perverts it even more to have it being wielded by fire, by a dragon, by something else. Um, I, I think like for Shadow, like Stannis's shadow being like his champion against Sir Courtney Penrose, I think it's a really interesting point. But as we saw, I think in the last two episodes, Stannis explicitly rejects any sort of single combat with Courtney Penrose on the face of it. Now, is that kind of like a metaphor, like the shadow is a metaphor for Stannis's uh, tri- champion by battle? Possibly, but I, I tend to think that more like this is just Stannis kind of, as we'll talk about in the episode itself, go using a shortcut in order to get around either a siege, storming the castle, or single combat. This is his way to kind of be like, fuck all those options. Here's what I'm actually going to do. I'm going to use a shadow because I'm a member of the faith of R-O-H-L, R-O-H-L, <laughs> Yes, I am a vast and fervent believer in the in, in the gods of in the god of R'hllor. So, anyways, that I've done enough jibber jabbering. What do you think, Emmett? I think you make an important distinction, and it's one that uh, Matthew made in the question as well, which is that Stannis and Eris have different, very different concepts of the magical power they're using. That for Stannis, at first at least, it really is just a game changer, a shortcut, a force multiplier. And for Eris, increasingly becomes the whole point. And I don't know if Stannis is ever going to quite get there. I think he's always going to have a transactional nature, even as the stakes get larger and larger. But they do kind of end up in the same place, and I think that is part of what George is driving at. And... 
there's that, that, that uneasy, you know, tip over point, that crossover between political power and magical power when you, you, know, you start climbing both ladders at once and so you start thinking that the champion of my throne is, is the nature of, of the elements themselves. And you have really outlandish examples of that, like tend to sometimes crop up in the Targaryen line. But even milder versions of it, like the way the Tullys think about themselves, as we've talked about before, that, you know, like Hoster Tully is the rivers and is the land. Isn't that just a, a nicer form of that kind of thinking where it's like you are the waters of the land and they yep. run through you and they're your veins? It's it's that same logic that certain characters just take to a kind of, you know, horrible extreme, but it's, it's buried deep in the society around them. And I think it comes out through these characters with different motivations in different ways. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's something I've talked a little bit about before and will going forward. It becomes very prominent in the Storm of Swords. I think when, when Stannis is nearing the edge of despair, Melisandre's present a lot. That's when like a very much a Varus and Mad King Eris dynamic is definitely going on there. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's a, it's a cool dynamic that George plays with, but I do think it's ultimately a perversion of the system of justice as it exists at some level for Westeros and Westerosi nobles. But... Yeah, don't use fire or dragons as your champions. It's just, uh, it's cheating, and nobody likes cheaters, especially kings who never cheat, or nobles who also never cheat. Not one bit. It's very scrupulously, perfectly clean, as always. <laughs> so thank you so much, Prince Matthew, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, access to our Nata Slack for the two highest tiers, and bonus episodes, like our recently released second part analysis on the Winds of Winter, the Forsaken chapter. And that, like Davos 2, is going to be a four-part uh, analysis, but we've just <laughs> done the second part of that now, available for every uh, patron with $5 a month or over. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun to do that episode, as we said last week, and I uh, I went back and re-listened to it this week just because I'm... It was, it was that good. It's, it's really, really good. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you do fantastic work on it. So it's, it's lovely all the way around. And uh, we also had 60 new patrons who join us this past month, which is really, really cool. And uh, it's kind of incredible. And thank you to all of our new and old patrons alike. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos just a week ago, he had had another fateful conversation with Stannis and been ordered to shut up in color. Let's find out how that coloring goes in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Davos 2, Part 4. And so it was that Davos Seaworth found himself once more crossing Shipbreaker Bay in the dark of night, steering a tiny boat with a black sail. The sky was the same, and the sea. The same salt smell was in the air, and the water chuckling under the hall was just as he remembered it. A thousand flickering campfires burned around the castle as the fires of the Tyrells and Redwines had sixteen years before. But, the, but all the rest was different. The last time it was life I brought to Storm's End, shaped to look like onions. This time it is death, in the shape of Melisandre of Ashai. Sixteen years ago, the sails had cracked and snapped with every shift of wind, until he'd pulled them down and gone on with muffled oars. Even so, his heart had been in his gullet. The men on the red wine galleys had grown lax after so long, however, and they had slipped through the court on smooth as black satin. This time, the only ships in sight belonged to Stannis and the only danger would come from watchers on the castle walls. Even so, Davos was taut as a bowstring. Melisandre huddles in her red clothes with only her face available to be seen. Why is that? We'll find out soon. And this is contributing to Davos' discomfort when he normally loves the sea. Melisandre comments that she can smell the fear on him because that's an extremely normal thing one human being says to a fellow human being, right? Someone once told me the night is dark and full of terrors, and tonight 
I am no knight. Tonight, I am Davos the Smuggler again. <laughs> Would that you were an onion. Melisandre laughed. Is it me you fear, or what we do? What you do. I have no part of it. Your hand raised the sail. Your hand holds the tiller. Davos doesn't really have a counter-argument to that, so he keeps steering the ship towards the shore, watching the tide and floating farther away from Storm's End. Are you a good man, Davos Seaworth? Melisandre asked. Would a good man be doing this? I am a man, he said. I am kind to my wife, but I have known other women. I have tried to be a father to my sons, to help them make a place in this world. I have broken laws, but I never felt evil until tonight. I would say my parts are mixed, milady, Good and bad. A grey man. Neither white nor black, but partaking of both. Is that what you are, Sir Davos? What if I am? Seems to me that most men are grey. If half an onion is black with rot, it is a rotted onion. A man is good, or he is evil. Davos sees the fires from Stannis' camp and the land fade behind him even further. He moves the boat through Blackwater, hearing only the sounds of the waves crashing against storms and in the shore. Davos turns the ship back to the shore and asks Melisandre if she's good or not. That made Melisandre chuckle. Oh, good. I am a knight of sorts myself, sweet sir. A champion of light and life. Yet you mean to kill a man tonight, as you killed Maester Crescent. Your maester poisoned himself. He meant to poison me, but I was protected by a greater power, and he was not. And Renly Baratheon? Who was it who killed him? Her head turned. Beneath the shadow of the cow, her eyes burned like pale red candle flames. Not I. Liar. Davos was certain now. Melisandre says that Davos is lost in darkness, and Davos says, yeah, good thing too. It's so cold and dark out here that the guards will huddle close to fires and hopefully not see them come up onto Storm's End. Anyways, they're all about the god of darkness tonight, right, Mel? (laughs) No. Davos is not to speak that name, or he'll draw his dark eye upon them. Again, just normal people chit-chat on Mel's part going on here. The winds start to shift, and Davos asks for Melisandre to help tie down the sail. He's gendering the rest of the way into Storm's End. He's rowing, guys. Also, who rode Mel into who rode Mel towards Renly anyways? She didn't need to get rowed to Renly. He wasn't protected. But Storm's End has spells that block some of her abilities. P.S. Not a big deal or anything, Davos, but no shadow can pass through the walls of Storm's End. Shadow? Davos felt his flesh prickling. A shadow is a thing of darkness. You are more ignorant than a child, Sir Knight. There are no shadows in the dark. Shadows are the servants of light, the children of fire. The brightest flame casts the darkest shadows. Frustrated, Davos orders her to stop saying cryptic shit as they approach the shore. Davos dips his oar into the water, but he can't hear it. The roar of the sea just grows louder and louder as Storm's End grows larger in front of them. Davos moves his boat in the same way he had come in during Robert's Rebellion. He looks for the same cave that led him to the castle, finds it, and aims the boat through the cavern. He moves deftly through jagged rocks, churning water, until he lets the waves push the boat into the cavern. Inside the cave, there's only the drip of water, the echo of water throughout. Ahead was the portcullis, and there was no passing through it. When they reach it, Davos turns to Melisandre and whispers that they could go no further. They can go no further. Have we passed beneath the walls? Yes, beneath, but we can go no farther. The portcullis goes all the way to the bottom, and the bars are too closely spaced for even a child to squeeze through. Melisandre doesn't answer, but Davos hears a rustling. And then, a light in the darkness. 
Davos reaches up to cover his eyes and then it gets super fucking normal. Is that the word? No, it is not the word. Melisandre had thrown back her cowl and shrugged out of her smothering robe. Beneath, she was naked and huge with child. Swollen breasts hung heavy against her chest and her belly bulged as if near to bursting. Davos cries out to the gods and Melisandre laughs, her eyes glowing like coals, her body drenched with sweat. She shines in the darkness and then she squats. Nice! Someone in this fantasy series is finally doing squats. Wait a minute. (laughs) Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. Her cry might have been agony or ecstasy or both. And Davos saw the crown of the child's head push its way out of her. Two arms wriggled free, grasping, black fingers coiling around Melisandre's straining thighs, pushing until the whole of the shadows slid out into the world and rose taller than Davos, tall as the tunnel, towering above the boat. He had only an instant to look at it before it was gone, twisting beneath the bars of the portcullis and racing across the surface of the water. But that instant was long enough. Davos knew that shadow, and he knew the man who'd cast it. And that is the conclusion to A Clash of Kings Davos 2, or the conclusion of part four of A Clash of Kings Davos 2. What a, yeah, I, I hate to use this term because it just has been overused in, since like 2000 or so, but what an epic end to this chapter, would you say? I completely agree. Uh, somehow, finally, <laughs> at last, we have arrived at the point of all this. What everything else in the chapter had been but talking around, gesturing at, and slowly, silently descending toward. The thing in itself. The thing no one can name. The living nothing that slit Renly's throat like a sacrifice for its parents, and now in their name throws Courtney Penrose from a tower like Bran before him. All the mystery and ambiguity and doublespeak we've been covering in the first three parts of the chapter suddenly just give way... And we are alone with a dreadful, beautiful light in the darkness. (laughs) But before the second shadow was born, this chunk of the chapter keeps the focus of its predecessors going, with dialogue scenes that speak to both the profound, urgent issues of good and evil at play in Westeros, and the inherent complexity of whatever you try to do about it. (laughs) Two characters plunging headlong into the issues of political philosophy, shaping the meaning of their actions. What makes this one different from the rest of the chapter is that Melisandre... Hovering in the background throughout the rest of Davos 2 is stepping up, replacing Stannis, replacing Courtney Penrose to have a very important conversation one-on-one with our POV, Davos Seaworth. And what a conversation it is. Because, you know, at the end, at the Game of Thrones season three premiere, George R. R. Martin said that, was asked who was the most misunderstood character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire and all of A Game of Thrones. And he said, Melisandre, he is, she is the most misunderstood character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And Varys, too, he also said that, but we'll skip that for now. It makes sense that George would say this in 2013 after the release of A Dance of Dragons and Melisandre's single, so far, point of view chapter. But I'd argue that here, in one of the weirdest, most magical scenes in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, we see complexities in Melisandre that aren't apparent if you're driving plot-wise towards the end point. That is the Shadow Baby. Now, I think like it should be stated that like saying that Melisandre is misunderstood and complex is not like just 
air brushing his misdeeds away. I think that can be a distinction that kind of loses some meaning here. Rather, it's George's and our attempt at providing relatable human experience and emotion to what Melisandre is doing in this chapter, her use of the shadow baby. And George commented about this and about what evil is, and he said this in 2013 also, which he said, so you try to see the world through the eyes to understand why they do the bad things they do. And we all have, even characters who are thought of to be bad guys who are bad guys in some objective sense, don't think of themselves as bad guys. And Melisandre in this chapter very directly states that she is good. And what makes her good? She is a servant of light, a priestess of the one true God. And I think we kind of scoff at that and that type of religiously informed ideology and morality as modern human beings. But there's millennia of human history religious, where religiously guided people and ideologies guided policy and ethics. George does something that goes beyond simply a guiding how we are treating ethics and morality and public policy. He layers that metaphysical power with real, tangible power, a shadow that violently ends Renly Baratheon and Courtney Penrose's lives. And it makes it one of the most powerful chapters in all of Song of Ice and Fire, certainly a top five in terms of chapter conclusions for any chapter in Song of Ice and Fire. It is quite the punchline, and it, it just builds on everything that's come before, and it leaves you as, as shaken as the POV and with the a new understanding of power itself. It's not just the image, it's it's the idea behind it. And coming off of part two of our series on The Forsaken, uh, this part of the chapter felt very much in line with that released Aaron Dampere chapter from The Winds of Winter. There was that same structure of a harrowing spiritual journey. A give and take between oppositional ideas, culminating in a terrifying apotheosis in the dark. And while Davos, of course, is not in nearly the physical peril or agony of a Dampere in the Forsaken, his soul is in turmoil. He feels like he's in chains. Like Aaron, Davos is being swept back in time as if by the tide, constantly measuring the gap between the past and present even as they swirl together. And so it was that he found himself once more crossing Shipbreaker Bay in the dark of night, steering a tiny boat with a black sail. He can't help but note the similarity to the defining moment of his life, bringing the onions into Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion, but also he can't help but notice the differences. The basic elements are the same, literally. The sky, the sea, the salt smell, the sound of the waves, the thousand flickering campfires on the shores, he describes them. But the specifics? Well, those are not only different, they're inverted. Last time he brought life shaped like onions. This time, he brings death shaped like Melisandre. So this is not merely a metaphor being employed by the author, it's being employed by the character. It's how he's understanding the larger forces working through him in this moment. It builds on the philosophical sweeping conversation with Stannis, and it also flows naturally from the environmental descriptions in that Davos is engaging with the core elements of the universe, physical and metaphysical. The salt and, and, and the, you know, the spray off the sea and the, the, the torches on the land, but also the, the, the moral issues and the ethical issues he's facing. The full range of human experience, life and death, mercy and punishment. The smuggler turned knight, turned smuggler again. The wheel of time closing for him. Davos is the onion knight, whose social mobility is intimately tied to sustenance, his mercy, life-bringing qualities. And now he is bringing the opposite of all of that. It is difficult to imagine a more perfectly constructed example of corruption, the big theme of this part of the chapter. Good ideals rendered bad by the presence of power, for power is what has changed. As Davos notes, 
He personally is in much less danger this time. Last time around this wheel, the larger ships around him belonged to the Red Wines, who would hang him if they caught him. <laughs> this time, the larger ships around him belong to Stannis. Yet Davos takes no comfort from this. The relative ease and security of passage guaranteed by his patron's newfound power brings Davos no peace of mind. Why? Because of what they're here to do. Because his cargo has transformed from life to death, mercy to punishment. Because winter has come for him. So the rise to power on which Davos has leveraged everything, the ability to be a knight among a large army, has failed him. His joy has turned to ash in his mouth. This feeling of being on the winning side in the Game of Thrones is what will give his family a better life, or so he keeps telling himself. But it doesn't feel right. Something is being lost here rather than gained, and so Davos feels like he's betraying the moment that changed his life, going back over it with a coat of red. It is tainted, lost and irretrievable like his faith, like his luck. It has been sacrificed to the flames and made a shadow of its former self. Davos's God has forsaken him. <laughs> Again, like Aaron, the sea itself brings no comfort, where once it was the source of meaning and strength for Davos the smuggler, as he thinks, slipping up and down the coast. He used to love the sea, as he used to take pride in his memory of his uh, life-changing mercy at Storm's End. But now, Davos is wielding the knife that cuts the fingers, and so the sound and smell of his old life becomes a curse to him. Excellently said. I love that. And just as Davos was the one who is under Stannis' knife and he is now the one wielding the knife, everything in this chapter feels like the inverse from Robert's Rebellion. The danger to Davos isn't in the ships that blockade Storm's End. Those are now ships of Stannis' Royal Navy or the Royal Navy if you're one of the Stannermen. And also Salarissan sells sails too. And the danger is beyond the walls of the castle itself. The, a garrison led by Renly Loyalists and, of course, Melisandre getting in beyond those walls. Stannis and Davos were besieged once before. Now they are technically the besiegers. Davos brought life by a fish and onions to Stannis. Now he brings death and Melisandre, as you and Davos were pointing out. The physical and psychological inverses are important, I think, because it serves as like an ideological mirror to what we saw in A Game of Thrones. How the legacy of Robert's Rebellion has been tarnished by the actions of the survivors, not just the victors, the survivors. Robert, muscled like a Bane's fantasy and fighting a just cause against a mad king who ordered the murder of children, turned into an obese alcoholic who ordered the murder of children, Daenerys and Viserys. Stannis, the stalwart defender of Storm's End who held out for nearly a year rather than take the ease away of surrender, has now yielded to the temptation of a shortcut in the form of magic and Melisandre to take the castle. And like kind of Ned Stark before him, Davos Seaworth has to deal with the fact that Stannis is different-ish from the man he knew 16 years ago. Remember that line from Eddard's fourth chapter in the Game of Thrones? All justice froze, flows from the king, Eddard had told Catelyn. When I know the truth, I must go to Robert. And then Eddard thinks, and pray that he is the man I think he is, he finished silently, and not the man I fear he has become. The same line could have been said by Davos about hoping that Stannis pans out to be the man he was at Robert's Rebellion, not the man he's become in the years since. And sadly for Davos, Stannis seems to be a different person from Robert's Rebellion, willing to satiate the emotional wounds of his youth and the wounds of his family of his brothers Robert and Renly through lethal trickery and sorcery. In Clash, like a Game of Thrones, we see that the legacy of Robert's Rebellion is fairly tragic. This Baratheon, so alike, and yet so dissimilar to Robert, has failed to live up 
has failed to live justly in the wake of a, in my opinion, just war in Robert's Rebellion. A rebellion which started out with the promise of making things better has led to terrible fucking outcomes and the embrace of powers that no one but Melisandre truly understands. Kind of. She kind of understands. Maybe not truly understands. She truly understands, I think, at some level up here, but I don't think she fully embraces what she's actually kind of dealing with. You've been doing a great job at pointing out how the Stannis Stavos dynamic echoes in certain ways the Ned Robert relationship from book one, and they're both carrying this pattern of corruption and kind of endless nostalgia forward and trying to grasp at what can't be grasped. And there's this transformation, but it's also like the, the, the era of the past is so idealized that it makes the present seem even shabbier by comparison. That's true. And then you can't, you can't even live in it properly. And we see that happening with so many members of this generation. And suddenly they end up on the side of the villain. Suddenly, as I was saying with Davos, they end up on the side of the knife that cuts the fingers. <laughs> and that knife, that fire, that coat of red is, of course, Melisandre. George slyly conceals the revelation, as you were pointing out, that will blow the reader's mind at chapter's end. She is wearing a large cloak, preventing Davos from seeing her pregnant belly. The reader, though, isn't likely to take note of that the first time through or will blame it on the environment. She's just avoiding the salt spray, the, you know, the cold wind, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's easy to imagine a version of this scene that's just Davos with his doubts, rowing Melisandre in silently, and then the birth of Shadow Baby the Younger. But Melisandre's character, along with Davos's, is greatly enriched by the conversation they have first, an intense and intimate one. Melisandre is a character with whom George engages eagerly on an intellectual and philosophical level, and so must we. Her signature move, from Crescent to Davos to John, is a disarming presumptuousness in which she acts like she's already your confidant. <laughs> One can only assume this is how she got under Stannis' stony, calcified skin. There's not much the other person in the room can do but play along in a kind of nonplussed fashion. Her opening line here is so over the top, it borders on parody. I can smell the fear on you, Sir Knight. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, as Matt noted last week, Melisandre is an astute stage manager, and she considers all her words very carefully. So why is she starting the conversation this way? Is it just to intimidate? To prevent Davos from daring to go off script now that Stannis isn't watching? Well, the rest of the conversation doesn't really go that way. Melisandre doesn't seem afraid of that. Moreover, Melisandre already knows that Davos is Stannis' confidant. There's not much risk of that. That's why Davos was put in charge of this mission. This will come up again in A Storm of Swords. Melisandre knows that Davos is useful for Stannis. So rather, I would argue that Melisandre's motives in kicking off the conversation at all is that she's curious about the one man Stannis seems to care about. What does the protagonist of reality find compelling about this random supporting character? What are his beliefs? What is the content of his character? Is my god pointing me in Davos's direction as well? Melisandre definitely is trying to cow him by opening the conversation this way. Melisandre does always want to operate in the superior position of power. But she's not interested in silencing Davos. <laughs> she is interested in the nature of his fear and therefore the nature of him. This is a conversation about morality, metaphysics, the nature of the human soul, and all of it pays off in the freakiest way imaginable with the shadow birth. Davos shoots back with a killer opening line of his own. Someone once told me, the night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> See, I can repeat your mantras. You yourself are the terror in the night spoken of by your faith. That's why I, you can smell the fear on me. I'm afraid of you for good reason. But I also see your hypocrisy. 
And calling out hypocrisy and deceit is a big part of Davos' story, repeated on Dragonstone in A Storm of Swords and White Harbor in A Dance with Dragons. He pricks consciences. Yet that does not resolve his own inner conflict so easily. Davos is not without hypocrisies of his own as he pursues both justice and mercy. It cannot be any other way. Tonight, he says, he is no knight. Some good wordplay there. He is a smuggler again, and wishes she were an onion. He wishes that nothing had changed, that he was still the merciful man he was. Melisandre digs further into the question of his fear. You're not afraid of me, she points <laughs> out. Clearly not, because you're snarking off at me. I'm something conveniently external to you. You're afraid of what we're doing here. Davos responds that she, and she alone, is responsible for what is happening here. He will have no part in it. And this is an example of Davos's own hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Melisandre immediately points that out. Davos's hand is quite literally on the tiller. He is directing her to where she needs to be. He's not running off and deserting in response to this order. Davos has made the choice that service to Stannis means more than the feeling of corruption he is experiencing. And that is understandable given his family's fate if he deserts. But it is a choice, and he does have to own it. Davos will finally wrestle with this in the Storm of Swords, how he feels culpable in all that has happened, how he feels he must redeem himself. Then again, there are layers to Melisandre's argument here. She is also talking about Stannis as well as Davos. As I said last week, Davos, like Stannis, wants to excuse Stannis of culpability, put all the responsibility on Melisandre. But Stannis' hand is on the tiller and the sails in a figurative sense. He is still the guiding decision maker at the heart of Team Dragonstone, more than Melisandre. We're going to see that in Davos' next chapter when he leaves her behind before the Battle of Blackwater. Davos must accept that Stannis' ultimate responsibility in A Storm of Swords, and that informs how he handles himself as Stannis' new hand of the king. Here, though, he is confounded by Melisandre's argument, for the moment. For the moment, and I think it's a good, that confoundment is a good kind of early midpoint climax to Davos' overall arc in A Song of Ice and Fire. So far, he's only willing to question Stannis' decisions, but when the order is given to shut up in color, as I was saying, Davos had never felt so sad. Feeling sad is appropriate, but it's not quite far enough. And I'm not saying that Davos is a good German here, as he has the sense to question the orders that he's being given, but how far is he from that mentality? We, we get back to that opening remark about the nature of good and evil and why evil people do evil things. Evil people in quotation marks. Davos isn't evil, as we're going to chat about here in a bit, but he's participating in a deed which he himself believes to be immoral and wrong, even if he doesn't know what exactly Melisandre is going to do when they actually get to Storm's End. But he does so because, to continue George's quote from my opening remarks about this chapter, we have our rationalizations when we do bad things. Well, I had no choice. Or, it's the best of several bad alternatives. Or, no, it was actually good because God told me so. Or, I had to do it for my family. We all have rationalizations for why we do evil, shitty, selfish things or cruel things. Davos, as he talked about in his first chapter in A Clash of Kings, has made Stannis his god, and he has to obey God, lest the older families of Westeros tear his own Nuvu Rishi family down. Nuvu Rishi, Nuvu Rishi. There we go. That's the rationalization for why Davos is doing the bad thing in this instance, and it makes logical. It's, it makes a lot of like sense up here. Logical sense, but not ethical ones. Ethical sense. As you were saying, Davos does a better job in A Storm of Swords of acting justly when his king refuses to do so. He is kind of go through a lot of trauma, pain and loss and sadness to get there. And those are all benchmarks for his arc. But to get to that 
point, Davos first has to start learning that he's not simply an empty vessel to be filled by Stannis's iron will. Is this uh, hashtag Stavros content? Whew, mm. I'm getting a little sweaty out here. Prime Stavros content. Well done, sir. <laughs> and of course, Melisandre is not exactly arguing from a dispassionate position herself, let alone a good faith position. She is trying to seduce Davos into a sunk cost fallacy in which because the corruption has begun, it must inevitably continue. You may as well embrace it. Once more, this is clearly the same way she has seduced Stannis, in a figurative sense anyway. And George is using this scene to give us a glimpse at that dynamic. You're already part of the team, Davos. You're already involved, so you may as well come all the way. And this is how Melisandre views, well, basically everything, all human ethics. She again asks a hilariously presumptuous question. Are you a good man, Davos Seaworth? Melisandre is acting as though Davos is a member of her faith, and so she has the right to speak this way to him. But she's also curious about his answer. And Davos, being a genial, obliging sort whose social status makes him eager to please, considers this question thoughtfully instead of just telling her to fuck off, which is what I might do if a stranger asked me if I was a good person or not. (laughs) What business is that of yours? Her question once more pricks his guilt. Would a good man be doing this? The very fact that his hand is on the tiller, as she says, makes him think he's ultimately not a good man, but rather a loyal man. And those used to be identical. Now, as you were saying, they are separate. Now Davos is split. And that is his honest answer. I am a man. I am kind to my wife, but I have known other women. I have tried to be a father to my sons to help them make a place in this world. I have broken laws, but I never felt evil until tonight. (laughs) I would say my parts are mixed, my lady, good and bad. And this is clearly George's follow-up to Stannis' declaration earlier. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. Stannis was addressing the duality of man, how we have both angels and devils within us. The difference is that Davos ultimately sides with mercy. Stannis believes that because we are mixed, as Davos puts it, we deserve both reward and punishment. The problem, as I said last week, is that Stannis assumes an objective position from which to judge, and his punishments tend to last longer than his rewards, because power serves the devil more than the angel. Davos believes, because that because we are mixed in a sense, in a, in a moral sense, we deserve mercy. We deserve to be spared divine punishment, because the gods made us heroes and villains in the same skin, and we are all just struggling to work that out. We are not good people, nor are most of us bad people, with a handful of exceptions. We are just people, in Davos's formulation. Most of us really aren't that different from anyone else. The only time we become different is when we forget that, when we act like the various forms of power literally ennoble us, lifting us above everyone else. Within the life of Davos, the individual, he has both been kind to his wife and committed adultery. <laughs> he has tried to help his sons, though he's worrying more and more these days he has ultimately failed them. He has broken many laws but he never felt evil until tonight. It is power that changed him. He is no longer simply an individual trying and often failing to do right by the people around him. Now he wields the power of punishment as well as mercy, a force multiplier he is not comfortable with. This is one of the central points of A Song of Ice and Fire, I think, that humanity, broadly writ, is mixed with good and bad parts within us, but the structures of power give way to our devils. Davos believes not only that he is a gray man, neither white nor black, but partaking of both, but that most men operate the same way. 
Good and evil are abstract concepts. In execution, they're almost always muddled because the battlefield between good and evil cuts through every human heart. And this is what George believes is lacking in a lot of lesser paperback fantasy. Imitating the surface of Tolkien without the substance. Reducing good and evil to collective sides in a literal war rather than interlinked sides in an internal war. And certainly there are correctives to that in fantasy before Song of Ice and Fire, during the publication, afterwards. But this, I think, was an important step in that process. To quote rules of the game, as I did during the Stannis vs. Renly standoff, the terrible thing in life is that everyone has their reasons. No one is completely reducible. And this isn't just kind of, kind of more like, you know, abstract, like, oh, you just gotta love everyone, man, kind of thing. It, it has consequences. If you believe that you are hopelessly evil, you have no reason to even try and do good. Mm-hmm. If you believe that you are inherently good, you will overlook your own capacity for evil. These divisions, however well-intentioned, are too strict, too simplistic to engage with the lived experience of humanity in any meaningful way. And Melisandre does engage sincerely with the idea, after teasing that out of Davos. She is the one who gives voice to the notion of being a gray man. That's her terms, not not his. So she's not dismissing it out of hand. Melisandre is, I think, within limits, intellectually authentic in this scene. (laughs) She is a Socratic kind of philosophy professor as much as a pure religious inquisitor. But she does ultimately disagree with Davos, putting forth her own worldview. To her mind, good and evil are not part of a spectrum. They are absolute opposites that do not mix. They are rigid poles with nothing in common. She puts it in terms of an onion, which again indicates she is trying to talk to Davos on his own terms. You know onions. (laughs) Putting her beliefs in a form he can relate to himself. Again, something that religious teachers often do. What's the parable that's going to fit this person? What's the right form? What's the metaphor for, for them? In her mind, evil is not something generally decent men carry around with them. Rather, evil is an infection, a corruption, that inevitably taints good. If your onion is half rotten, it's entirely rotten. If you are half evil, you're evil. Once it gets its claws in you, it cannot be held back. Evil will have its way with you in the end. Much as I generally come down on Davos' side of these arguments, George is going out of his way here to communicate that Melisandre has a point to make. What Melisandre is saying about evil is identical to what I was saying about power. By its very nature, it is impossible to contain. It is seductive and all-consuming. The great irony here once more comes back to hypocrisy. The impossibility of all these flawed, blinkered mortals making sweeping statements about the universe with any heft. Melisandre is right about corruption. But she herself is an agent of corruption. Her actions have led to both Stannis and Davos's moral compasses going awry. It's not that she's really wrong about the nature of evil, it's that she refuses to apply this logic to herself, her messiah, or her lord of light. They are exceptions, or so she thinks, but she is wrong. Her path to hell is paved with good intentions, but that doesn't change the destination, the sacrifice of Shireen. Her inability to accept the coexistence of good and evil Her insistence that you must be one or the other leads her not to good, but to evil. Because the problem is humanity is far more successful at perfecting evil than we are at perfecting good. (laughs) If she was able to accept Davos' worldview, her own worldview would not be this razor-sharp binary, unable to accept the fallen nature of humanity as a given. That version of Melisandre might not get in her own way. The very zealotry she thinks is necessary to save the world is sabotaging her own efforts to do so. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, 
If you insist that every half-rotten onion is a rotten onion, then all you will see in the world are rotten onions, in need of a purge. Meanwhile, in A Storm of Swords, in the Sam chapter of Craster's Keep, George offers a quiet rebuttal to Melisandre's metaphor. When Craster's wives brought onions, Sam seized one eagerly. One side was black with rot, but he cut that part off with his dagger and ate the good half raw. See? Good can be preserved. We can work to fight the devil within us and honor the angel. And within Melisandre's worldview, there would be no point in even making that attempt. Uh, first of all, I celebrate your embrace of Calvinism there and saying that people are better <laughs> you know, to perfect evil rather than good. But uh, joking aside, I think like that's really, really well said. I, I think George does offer that counter argument to Melisandre's argument about if you have a half rotten onion, then it's only going to be rotten as opposed to it's being simply half rotten and half good and you can eat the good half. I think some of this conversation also reminds me of the dialogue at the end of the Clash of Kings prologue between Melisandre and Cresson. The optics are slightly different. Davis and Melisandre are not surrounded by the entirety of Stannis's court. But the purpose, at least from Melisandre's point of view, is kind of the same. She wants to understand Davos's viewpoint and convince him that her viewpoint is the correct one. And I was thinking back to the feast scene from the prologue and how Melisandre questions Crescent's skepticism regarding Valor, where she doesn't just simply denounce him at first. She says, you think not, as a question, when Davos says that gods make for uncertain allies. And Melisandre at that point was only partially interested at the, at the most generous interpretation in Crescent's point of view as she uses the opportunity in the prologue to tell Crescent that he should pick up Patchface's fool's crown for, quote, speaking such folly, using mockery as a tool to win more converts to her side. In contrast, Melisandre seems genuinely interested in Davos' perspective, or in Davos himself, hence all of the questions. And why wouldn't she be? I mean, for a lot of us who might have grown up in secular households, we might think of religious people as closed-minded and completely intolerant of other points of view. But Melisandre is not merely a religious fanatic. She is a religious fanatic, but not merely a religious fanatic. She's an evangelist, a missionary. She's come to convince heathen Westeros of the truth of her lore, starting with Selyse, continuing on through Stannis, on to Davos. Now, I've been around missionaries and evangelists all my life. Hell, I'll even reveal something about myself. I was even a short-term missionary when I was 18 years old, which is a story for another time that I'll talk about here. The point is that evangelists and missionaries don't last long and don't gain converts if they are closed-minded and uninterested in debate. And what better way to demonstrate the faith of her lore if she was to win over Davos Seaworth, one of the king's men, who, one who was also seemingly uninterested in joining with the queen's men to gain greater station in life. As a side note, it's kind of fascinating to me that George had a mini Melisandre point of view chapter here several books before she gets her own chapter. You can see why George made her a point of view chapter, given the characterization that he already has for her year going back to A Clash of Kings. But Davos, like Crescent before him, only sees Melisandre as the font of evil, the deliverer of death, and the deceiver of kings. But is he actually right about that? I love what you were saying about how Melisandre's argument kind of builds on how real-world evangelicals and real-world missionaries try to work in these 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 convincing arguments. Again, e- even though there's this kind of implied power subtext that Melisandre always uses, but in this position, she's kind of still, for the moment, in a position of physical vulnerability. She's not really wielding any power over Davos. He just kind of feels that she is, which is kind of her point. That's kind of how she, she's, she's trying to win him over. And at this point, they have sailed out as far as they're going to go figuratively as well as literally. Melisandre's argument takes place far out to shore, literally distant from the lived experience of humanity as Davos understands it. And so Davos swings us back around. 
As he does so, he counters her argument, turning it around as he's turning his ship around, forcing her to look into the mirror and apply her worldview to herself. You speak of men and onions. What of women? Is it not the same for them? Are you good or evil, my lady? And Melisandre, unlike Stannis, does not get angry about Davos calling her a hypocrite. Why? Because Stannis is experiencing profound doubt, and so Davos touched a nerve. He fears that Davos is right, that's why he reacted so explosively. Melisandre is experiencing no such doubts. She is terrifying in her serenity and certainty. She merely chuckles at Davos' thrust and parries it. I am good. Why is she good? Because she is the champion of the Lord of Light, and he is good. He is the essence of light and life and summer, and so she, herself, is a knight of sorts. Again, George is using this scene to complicate her character, expanding her beyond the surface, misunderstood for the substance. Melisandre is the definitive witch in many readers' minds, and it's difficult to move beyond that image because she does so often fulfill that trope perfectly, and we'll talk a little bit about that more towards the end of the episode. But here she is arguing that she is a different trope entirely. She is a knight, like Davos, and like the good guys in the stories who set out to slay the wicked witch. This is an idea George has been playing with from Melisandre's introduction, in which Crescent described her as taller than most knights. The opposites are brought together. That which you thought is your enemy is actually a reflection of yourself. That's your face inside Darth Vader's mask. Angel and devil inside the same skin. The human condition. And Melisandre is no more inhuman than Stannis is actually a god. She's a person, like Davos, like Stannis, like anyone else. But again, even as she makes this important point that not everything is the way it seems and people are complex, Melisandre dodges the insight of that. She ignores how she is deconstructing her own simplistic worldview. If she can be a sorceress and a knight, then people are more complicated than her good-slash-evil binary suggests. She, too, is gray, like Davos. If the flames move and are never still, as she told Stannis, casting multiple shadows across the future, then her uh, rotten onion metaphor is total bullshit. People are vast and contradictory. Stannis and Melisandre are perceptive enough to recognize this, but not perceptive enough to truly live with and inhabit that truth. They insist that this liminal gray status is something to be resolved in one direction or the other, rather than the permanent human condition. As Davos immediately asks, how can Melisandre call herself a pure champion of life when she has come in this case to deliver death? Didn't she kill Maester Crescent after all? Well, no, she didn't. <laughs> Once more, George is complicating our perspective, preventing us from coming down on Davos equals right and good and Melisandre equals wrong and bad, even though he and I think the reader is supposed to generally come down with Davos' side. Melisandre responds with what the reader already knows. Crescent got himself killed while trying to assassinate Melisandre. He was the agent of death, not her. The king's men, in pursuing what they believe to be the righteous destruction of inherent evil, end up falling into the trap of Melisandre's own simplistic worldview. By trying to eliminate their fears, their enemy, they become their enemy. They see red, literally and figuratively, and commit themselves to spilling blood. Come a storm of swords, Davos will fall deeper into this trap, trying to kill Melisandre as a warrior of God, and when that fails, he must reason his way out of it, coming up with a way to resist Melisandre that does not adopt her way of thinking, but rather worms his way around it. 
Here, once more, Davos has not fully developed that counter-argument and can only poke holes in Melisandre's. Well, what about Renly? Didn't you kill him? As with Stannis, the mention of Renly's death seems to throw Melisandre off. This is indeed the fly in her ointment, the clear flaw in her argument. Melisandre turns to study him, and her eyes in the spooky, eerie moment are like pale flames under her hood. The light of judgment, the light of the truth. She says she did not kill Renly. Once more, Melisandre is technically right while dodging the deeper implications. It was Shadow Baby the Elder who struck the blow, not mm-hmm. Melisandre herself. Moreover, as she thinks about it, R'hllor is ultimately responsible for all this, right? We can all just get behind that. Sure, and if it wasn't R'hllor who was responsible, it was obviously Stannis who was the one who cast the shadow and thus was the one who killed Renly. Melisandre had nothing to do with it. And the best theory I think that I've seen articulated about this is by the writer Cantus, is that Melisandre had put Stannis in close proximity of her targets and then used the murderous hatred that Stannis felt to fuel the birth of the Shadow Baby. So R'hllor, the Shadow Baby, but possibly Stannis is at fault as well. If she's implying it's Stannis, is that a good faith argument on Melisandre's part, though? I mean, no, not really. Go back and re-listen to our debate on part two of our analysis of Clash Kings Davos 2. It's difficult to tease out exactly who she's talking about here because it could be so many people at once, including herself still at some level. And like Stannis, Melisandre does not want to engage with Davos' deeper argument about culpability and the struggle between mercy and punishment. Even though she just pointed out the Davos... That because his hand is on the tiller, he bears partial responsibility for what's about to happen, she cannot apply this logic to herself. Did she not raise the sails, so to speak, for Renly's death? Back to the Forsaken. If God isn't there, or at least not listening, then there is only us with our angels and devils bearing responsibility for what both do. Melisandre wants to think of herself as purely a vessel for her God's will, as Davos thinks of King Stannis as his God and himself is merely a servant. But both of them are wrong. They are making decisions. They are struggling between their angel and devil halves, and they cannot use their gods as fig leaves forever. Melisandre laughs that Davos is lost in darkness and confusion. She is not wrong. But she, too, is lost in darkness and confusion, and people will pay the price for that. The seduction of power, like the seduction of fate, is that we are not truly in control, but merely in service to a larger structure, and responsibility lies upward. Free will is liberating, but also terrifying in this regard, because it is a judgment that comes from within. There is no escaping it, no externalizing it onto God. Once you accept yourself as the master of your own destiny, the easy binaries fall away, collapsed within your own heart and mind. Davos knows this better than most. And so he argues to Melisandre that he is glad to be lost in the darkness, because the darkness is shielding them from the men on the castle walls. As Bloodraven says to Bran in A Dance with Dragons, Never fear the darkness, Bran. The strongest trees are rooted in the dark places of the earth. Darkness will be your cloak, your shield, your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong. Darkness speaks to isolation, confusion, not being able to see your path unfold. But it also allows for rest, sleep, dreams, self-examination, reforging of strength for the day. As Davos notes, it is the cold driving the men on the walls to huddle around torches and so not be able to see Davos and Melisandre pass. Winter is harsh and brutal associated with death, but we need death as well as life. An eternal summer would ultimately be just as bad. 
The sun would bake everything dry, an exploding population would overwhelm natural resources. Moreover, on a more spiritual and philosophical level, you need bitter as well as sweet to give life meaning. You need changes to recognize and spur the changes within you. We need structure, the flow of time. You need balance in your life. And this is the hard-earned philosophy of Davos Seaworth, and it is a philosophy that George clearly favors, but he does not rest on it. He complicates it further. After all, Davos doesn't really want this mission to succeed anyway, right? <laughs> Part of him would be secretly very glad if those men on the walls saw them and you know, gave an outcry and Davos had to sail away. So while his argument may be sound in the abstract, it breaks on the specifics, like water on rock, which is what I've been saying about Melisandre's arguments as well. Moreover, she has a comeback. The torches are truly what is hiding them, blinding the men on the wall to their presence. That is R'hllor's grace at work. And it, she's not exactly wrong. There is a consistent <laughs> argument to be found in there. There is a thread you can follow, but she is once more ignoring the deeper implications of his point and keeping things strictly on the surface. What about the cold driving them to that warmth? Aren't those working together somehow? Moreover, isn't R'hllor still employing darkness as a tool, the Lord of Light? Melisandre wants to think of cold and darkness as belonging to a single evil, nameless god with a dark eye leading the White Walkers. But that doesn't really appear to exist as a separate entity on the level she's talking about. There really is no objective god of cold and dark and death and winter. That's why someone like Euron can try to take over the job. <laughs> Rather, these are forces which coexist with warmth and light and life and summer, and these forces coexist not only in the world, but in the individual. Melisandre simply cannot deal with that, because it demonstrates that she's wrong about the nature of the universe, and therefore wrong about pretty much everything. When Davos tires of her explanations and tells her just to have it her way, she insists that this is his way, R'hllor's way. This is just another fig leaf to avoid responsibility. R'hllor is not here. R'hllor is not talking. R'hllor is not dancing around Davos's arguments. This is you, Melisandre, for better or for worse. And I think those are all really good points. And I think it speaks to something that is a minor pet peeve of mine when we talk about the conversations that Davos and Melisandre have throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. That idea of Melisandre and Davos as respective devil and angel on Stannis' shoulders. It's just aggravating. The Game of Thrones show, have you heard of this show? I hear it won a couple of awards. Plays into this imagery repeatedly, repeatedly in seasons three and four. And I've included an image for patrons to take a look at. Uh, a, a meme where you have Davos on one side and Melisandre on the other side. And they're both represented as the figurative devil, literal, actually literal devil and angel on Stannis' shoulders. And the reasons why I find that so aggravating is, as you were saying, Davos thinks of himself as a servant of God. His God, though, is King Stannis King Stannis Baratheon. Melisandre is speaking similarly to Davos. She's a mere servant, no will of her own. Her God speaks and she bends. But of course, as you were saying, her God isn't actually present on board this ship. They've cast themselves into these roles as instruments of their respective gods when they're not, and they both bear culpability for what's about to go down here at Storm's End. Davos is a knight. Melisandre is a, quote, knight of sources, you were pointing out. And as you were saying earlier, a knight is not a stand-in for a, quote, good person. It's not synonymous. There are knights like Sir Arthur Dane and knights like Gregor Kilgane, and there are knights somewhere in the middle like Sir Heil Hun, who I totally do not look like and act like. Religion, knighthood, loyalty, the beliefs, and the job you hold are not what distinguishes you from being moral or immoral. 
faith without works, as the Apostle James said, is dead. You have to actually do something based off of what you believe in. And that's what makes you a good person or a two thirds of the way good onion as opposed to a half good, half rotted onion. Exactly. The, the, the actions are what bring you together and kind of lay your soul bare. And so when the wind shifts, Davos requires Melisandre's help, actions to bring in the sail. Again, George is showing us how they are brought together, one and the same in their service. Their worldviews are opposing, but their arguments come together. As you were saying, Melisandre says she is a knight of sorts, a granting of a metaphorical bridge which makes her more interesting, but also exposes the hypocrisy of her worldview. As they work, Davos decides to give Melisandre's conversational techniques a spin. Again, the opposites coming together. He just presumes intimacy and asks, who rode you to Renly? So rather than ask her if she killed Renly and try to navigate her half-true answer, he just takes it as a given that she did and asks, <laughs> who helped her in that case? Whose hand was on the tiller? Who shared the responsibility for that? Did you have this same conversation with them? Melisandre approves of Davos's presumptuousness and responds honestly. As it turns out, Melisandre needed no help with Renly. <laughs> The fact that she's saying this at all would seem to admit her guilt, but again, she has already fobbed it off onto R'hllor or Stannis or the Shadow Baby, some combination. So she need not lie further about her own somehow still blameless role in Renly's death. <laughs> As for Courtney's death, though, this is different because of Storm's End. There is power wo- woven into this wall. Old power, sorcerous power to counter hers. And this reminds us that Westeros is not exactly pure and virginal where magical power is concerned. <laughs> the fiery ladder is baked into Westerosi political power. And once again, we go back to Melisandre's argument. The onion was already half rotten, and so entirely rotten. This is how power already always works in Westeros, with magic just kind of on the margins, spicing things up a bit. How can she be said to really be changing things? What's the difference? The problem with her argument, as with Stannis' earlier in the chapter, is that she presumes a flawless knowledge of the nature of good and evil, and that she is on the side of good. But if Storm's End boasts a large curtain wall protected by magic, then it is once more, as it was in Catalan 3 and 4, an analog to THE wall, which puts Melisandre on the side of the White Walkers, who snuck Mm. their zombified servants past those spells to commit murder back in Book (laughs) 1. Opposites collide. That which you think is a rigid binary is in fact a mirror. In your zeal to defeat the enemy, you have become the enemy, as all things come around. Far from defeating the terrors in the night, you are the terror in the night. Melisandre is red, and the others are blue. Her shadows are black. The White Walkers are, well, white. But these are surface oppositions. Under the surface, the forces of ice and fire are one, the crossover point. The same wonder and the same terror. Just ask Jon Snow about it. Mel's shadows cannot get past the magical defenses of Storm's End, like the dragons can't get past the wall. Davos points out that the shadows are darkness. Mel shoots back that the shadows are only given existence by light, not darkness. The, lo- the brightest lights cast the darkest shadows. And once again, she is, she is making an interesting point in filling out her, our understanding of her faith. And she's building on the imagery from earlier in a consistent way. But she is still managing to undercut her own point in the big picture. Demonstrating that, in fact, all things contain their opposite. If bright lights cast dark shadows, then Azora High, warrior of light, can commit deeds of great evil in the darkness. Robert cast his shadow on Stannis. Look at the result. 
Moreover, Melisandre is wrong that there are no shadows in the darkness. The others and their servants are repeatedly described as such. When, when the zombies show up at the wall, as I was saying in book one in one of John's chapters, then he saw it, a shadow in the shadows, sliding toward the inner door that led to Mormont's sleeping cell. Uh, in, in the prologue to A Game of Thrones, when the White Walkers show up, Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. And then a shadow emerged from the dark of the wood, and its, its armor is changing color there, black as shadow. When you get to the, the attack on the Fist of the First Man and the Storm of Swords, they were loosing fire, a- fire arrows at shadows in the dark. When the zombies track down Sam a little later on the Storm of Swords, when it's down to just him and Gilly, the long hall was dark with shadows, black and blacker. <laughs> the same language is used, in fact, to describe Jon Snow in the Night's Watch. Jon Snow was described earlier in A Clash of Kings as a shadow among shadows. And then later in this book, Corrin Halfhand says that shadows are friends to men in black. And I think this is I think this is a metaphor for a lot of different things depending on the character and specific situation involved. <laughs> of course, as always with this kind of imagery. But I think what it stands in for as a whole is that even in dark times, even when all else has forsaken you, even when arguments like Melisandre's at their, are at their most seductive, it is still possible for things to get worse, and you have to bear that in mind. It is still possible for you to make it even darker outside. Melisandre's mantras only sound coherent and logical in the abstract, mm-hmm. in her own mind and Stannis's. In Davos's mind, a.k.a. the lived reality, <laughs> they fall apart. Yet, they are just powerful and convincing and internally consistent enough that Davos cannot at once take them apart. And that, like so much else we've been talking about, is going to have to wait for a Storm of Swords. Mm, cannot wait for those conversations come a Storm of Swords. It's some of my favorite stuff in Storm. And, you know, for me, a lot of this conversation feels like stuff that would occur in a dorm room debate about from Melisandre's perspective, right? Nothing that I ever participated in when I was a freshman, sophomore, <laughs> junior, or senior in college. She knows what's about to happen. She's well aware of what she's going to be doing now. So now she's just shooting the shit about Shadow's morality and culpability with Davos. And sure, she'd like it if Davos joined up with the Breloric cause, but that's not the priority at the moment. Later on. And that's definitely not what Davos is experiencing as they row up to Storm's End. Davos feels, quote, tense as a bowstring because he finds this entire ordeal challenging to his loyalty and his sense of right and wrong. On the waters of Shipbreaker Bay, Davos is having a crisis of faith, a moment when he doubts that his god, that is Stannis, is the one true god and worth his loyalty. Melisandre confidently believes that she's moving in R'hllor's holy light, and Davos feels the agony of consciously doing the wrong thing, and that makes the power dynamics between these two in the conversation compelling. Kind of reading between the lines, you get the sense that Melisandre never really, Melisandre and Stannis never really had the type of conversation that Stannis and Davos had about the morality and ethics behind about what's what's behind what's about to happen. Stannis saw the power that Melisandre had in the prologue when she survived the poison that Crescent intended for her, and has opted for a Red Hawk thereafter. When we do see conversations occurring between Melisandre and Stannis in the Storm of Swords, there's a fascinating kind of role reversal here. Again, we'll talk about this more in depth in Comes from a Swords, where Stannis plays the Davos role, questioning Melisandre about the validity of her prophecies with regard to the leeches and the dead kings specifically. The reason why this reversal occurs, I think, is that Stannis becomes, quote, tense as a bowstring after he stops receiving benefits from R'hllor. He's not willing at this point to examine the premises that benefit him until after his defeat on the Blackwater. Man, Stannis, very human. How human of you, dude? 
The Black Order that becomes Stannis' Crisis of Faith is will unpack in later chapters, and it'll wait for further exploration about the impacts and the fallout from that in Storm of Swords. For now, though, we are at the point that we're all waiting for, and that is Davos' boat nearing Storm's end, his emotions running high, tension reaching a fever pitch, and magic about to unfold. Mm, beautifully said. For Melisandre, this has been kind of academic up to this point, and Davos has been in agony, but now she kind of steps to join join him in this, this, this wordless, sublime space. Davos is all out of words as we come up against Storm's end. The union of magical and political power and defiance of the gods embodied by that castle about to be toppled and taken. Davos steers Melisandre and the reader back in time, back to his first journey down this dark gullet as he thinks about it, and back much further, as he said, to the storm lords of old who used to make a harbor here. There were other people last time around the Wheel of Time, starving men who welcomed Davos and the life he brought. But this time, there is no one to welcome him in the cave, because he is bringing only death. There is a primal power to this moment, as this elaborate, expansive chapter shrinks down to a tiny tunnel into the dark, as the smooth, stone, immense face of power gives way to an ancient hidden weakness known to very few. We are finally reaching past all the faces power has worn in this chapter, arriving at truth, a light in the darkness, the thing in itself. We are being reborn. Appropriately enough, there is clear sexual imagery and womb imagery in this scene. Davos is metaphorically impregnating Storm's End, where Stannis literally impregnated Melisandre. We are entering a new world, and with it, a new generation. What has made this possible? Well, it's not Melisandre's powers, not quite yet. It is the smuggler's skill that have not abandoned Davos of House Seaworth. His knighthood that has brought him here is now a curse rendered a noose around his neck like his finger bones, contributing to his corruption in the Garden of Good and Evil. Here in the literal and moral darkness, with Davos's god having left him forsaken, everything trembling on the edge of death and rebirth, Melisandre steps forth to take center stage in the story. Before we get into what is waiting for us under that cloak, we should pause to talk a little about suspense, catharsis, and how George manages this moment. When you step back from the sheer vivid terror and beauty of this as an image, it's interesting to consider how much information we have going into it. Really, there is not much we don't know. We have already seen a shadow assassin at work. We already know it's linked at some level to Stannis, and Melisandre just reminded us about it in case we were unclear that it's also linked to her by bringing up shadows unprompted in her conversation with Davos. We just spent several episodes breaking down how Courtney Penrose ended up on Team Dragonstone's kill list in the first place. So it's pretty clear, even to a first-time reader, that a second shadow is about to be dispatched to kill Courtney Penrose. We have the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. So where does the shock come from? It comes from the how. As a first-time reader, if you're inclined to guess at all, you might expect Melisandre to say summon a shadow with a wand or something. Not what she does. Hitchcock talked about the difference between shock and suspense. Shock is a bomb going off without warning. Suspense is showing the audience the bomb and letting them wait for it to go off. There's an element of agony at work. The French called it a film d'angoise, a film of anguish crossing the lines between horror and thriller. Thrillers and horror movies both rely on suspense and catharsis, but broadly speaking, they make different use of them. Thrillers gear their suspense and catharsis around 
plot events, plot revelations. The villain of The Fugitive is exposed. The killer in Collateral was targeting the love interest. Oh no, what's going to happen? Horror gears its suspense and catharsis more around revelations about the nature of reality and its characters, the basic state of play the plot inhabits. Michael Myers can't really be killed. Look at him get up again and again and again. Are the ghosts in The Shining real? Well, they finally intervene once. Our Beloved Fever Dream by George R. R. Martin certainly has a major plot beat that twists everything around, but its most memorable and distinct moments are these kind of moments, horror revelations about what it is exactly we're dealing with. These produce different structures. Thrillers feel like they're rocketing you forward. Horror movies feel like a descent, like they're swallowing you whole. The film of anguish produces a horror tone within a thriller structure, delivering the sunken revelations of horror within the ruthless pacing of a thriller. Forward from Hitchcock, films like Don't Look Now, Silence of the Lambs, No Country for Old Men, you could argue, are well-received movies that fit this half-horror, half-thriller form. And George achieves a very similar effect here. He gives us almost all the information we need to know what's going to happen, the agony of suspense rocketing us forward, but the catharsis, rather than smoothly flowing in with a plot revelation, brings everything to a shrieking halt and completely reframes everything we've been talking about in the chapter so far. The thriller pacing and the horror imagery produces one of the most viscerally powerful stretches of writing in A Song of Ice and Fire. As your shoulders hunch along with Davos's, you imagine the darkness closing in, you hear his, his words like, how George describes them, like mice with pink feet across the water. All the more effective because the audience has just been so wrung dry of tension by that point. We understand just enough to be gobsmacked by what we could not have seen coming. A final revelation, a second coming, a reshaping of reality itself. Davos is alone in the darkness, and a light blooms. The light of God, the light of fire, the light of birth, the rebirth, the hero's journey, the rise of the savior of the world. Or is it? <laughs> Are we witnessing a miracle or a curse? Mary's baby or Rosemary's? Cleansing fire or smothering shadow? Is this the rise of the hero or the rise of the villain? It's a great question. I think it, George leaves it ambiguous. I think we are supposed to come up with this feeling rather ambiguous about the whole event altogether. And I think one of the ambiguities I find in this part of the chapter about the light blooming out is kind of the physical mechanics of it. Is it in keeping with Melisandre's ability to manipulate light and heat that's demonstrable. She burns Vermeer's eagle and has a chest of potions and powders that she brings to the wall, which of course is only about a quarter full by that point. She can also light a sword on fire, seemingly without wildfire. So are there physical properties at work in this blooming of light here in, and I apologize, there's a thunderstorm going on outside of my house right now. So if you hear any booms, it's, it's all that. So the question I have here is whether there really are physical properties at work or if this is a supernatural miracle or is this a combination of both things occurring at the same time? That's a great question. Somewhere in that Venn diagram exists Melisandre and it's so hard to get an angle on it. And even Davos, who's, who's quite more biased against her than I think ultimately the reader is supposed to be, even he finds it difficult to take away a single conclusion in part because he's just trying to be intellectually honest in part because he just doesn't have the tools to process this. It's hard even now as a reader to process any of this intellectually. Because Melisandre seems to literally shrug off all of that debate, along with her robe, in favor of the thing in itself. 
All the discourse that has defined this chapter and our endless series of episodes on this chapter pales before her. <laughs> it is all sound and fury by comparison. It is all moot, mute. This is what it feels like to watch a new god rise. <laughs> the old world falls away and all is reborn in a new image. It's precisely the effect Melisandre wants to have. We know how Davos feels. Our jaw drops, our hairs stand up, every word drills deep. It's as heart-poundingly effective as horror imagery gets. And Melisandre is not abandoning her earlier arguments to just bulldoze Davos, so much as she is carrying those arguments forward from the purely verbal to the physical and beyond. She fearlessly makes herself naked, so sure of herself and her truth. Love her, hate her, you cannot question her presence, her power, and thus her god. And the scene in the show adds a genuinely interesting layer, I think, in having Melisandre tell Davos that she knows he wants to see what's under her robes. I say interesting genuinely because it helps set up the attempt by Melisandre to seduce Davos in A Storm of Swords and in Season 3 of the Game of Thrones show. But also interesting because I do wonder whether the sh if the show makes the subtext text. Does Davos desire Melisandre at some level? Is the fear he feels to her rooted in some sort of sexual desire, recoilance from her? Davos recoils when Melisandre offers her body to him in a storm of swords, but he contextualizes that through the shadows that Melisandre wants to birth with Davos' seed. He regards them as horrors and things that he does not want to be a part of. But I do kind of wonder whether this is subtext here for part of why Davos is scared. Not, not wholly, obviously. There's a lot of shitty, freaky shit that's going on here, but some subtext I think might be at work. I think it's I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's the combination of his desire and his repulsion that's freaking him out. I think the same thing was at work with Crescent, denying her beauty, calling her red and terrible and red. And I think the same thing has worked with Stannis, who generally, you know, not exactly the most sexually active of men, but is taken in by Melisandre, and it's that 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 uneasy give and take. She is pregnant, as it turns out. But in no position of vulnerability, no hint of pain or discomfort until this point, no presence of midwife nor doctor, no partner of any kind needed. All she needs is a witness. The man whose mind she has been trying to change. The one doubting heathen in this barren land whose opinion her messiah seems to respect. This is her proof of concept. If power works so differently than you can even comprehend, Onion Knight, then should your morality not change as well? As I've been saying, one's moral compass is always going to be determined to a large degree by one's access to power, and therefore one's understanding of power. Davos said that King Stannis was his god, his north star, his eternal flame. But the meaning of his god has changed. Who was he to call that evil? His hand was still on the tiller. He knew they came here to kill. Not like this, but what does it matter? Part of me thinks that this is basically no different from sending in someone to poison Sir Courtney's goblet. What's the ethical difference really between that and this? But another part of me disagrees, because of the way in which this scene is written, the way in which Stannis just won't talk about it, and what it does to Davos. This scene is not written as a thriller revelation of espionage, but a horror revelation that reshapes our understanding of the material world at play. We're going to talk more about the nature of the shadow birth towards the end of the episode, but I wanted to note the effect it has in character terms on both Stannis and Davos, what it does to them emotionally. For Stannis... It has turned him to ash and dust inside, a burnt-out corpse only technically alive. It has stripped him of his shadow, part of himself, and he just did it again. 
For Davos, it has already left him feeling miserable and forsaken, questioning all his life choices. Now his mighty pillars are being corrupted beyond recognition. He whispers, Gods preserve us, as some last forlorn hope of luck, of mercy, as Sam begs for mercy when he's being chased by the White Walkers beyond the wall. Okay. One last hope for the old world for which Davos sacrificed his fingers, and Melisandre laughs. She laughs like Stannis laughed earlier in the chapter unexpectedly. But unlike Stannis, she is laughing at Davos, at his gods, at his feeble, foolish pretensions turned to dust. There is a new god in town. This is a new order. And for all, Melisandre is described as a light in the darkness, something sublime. Her eyes glowing like hot... The detail that her eyes are glowing like hot coals is hellish. What is the cost of her new world? The old one. It's Stannis' soul. The shadow rising above Davos bears Stannis' face. The dark side of his crown. It is the guilt and fear from earlier in the chapter given form. Hideous self-knowledge. A shadow of a doubt. This is corruption. The fallen nature of man. We turn our faces from the light. We climb to heaven only to populate it with horrors. The light itself, the fire that makes us who we are, casts darker shadows the brighter it gets. <laughs> Melisandre is genuinely powerful, as we see here beyond all possible doubt. But she is not her god, and her god is not what she thinks it is. She is mortal, flawed as Stannis or Davos or anyone else. And so she is overpowered in multiple senses of the word. Even as they climb the fiery ladder... Team Dragonstone becomes shadows of their former selves, turned to ash by the fire they grasp. And this is how power operates. It corrupts. It demands you throw your heart into the flames. I love that. That's always really well said. And I love this, the, the, all you, the, the throwing the heart into the flames. That, that works really well as both the banner of, of Stannis Baratheon as well as how it actually works out in the, in the text and in the plot itself. Earlier in Clash, we met a certain fellow by the name of Craster. Remember him? I, I, I try not to. Craster only had daughters, and he had no sons. Or did he? As was hinted to John in Clash and all but revealed to Samwell in A Storm of Swords, Craster did have sons. And through sorcerous means shown in Game of Thrones Season 4 and likely to be seen in The Wind's Winter, he gives them to the cold and they become the White Shadows, the others. Stannis only has one daughter, Shireen. He has no sons. Or does he? The shadows that Melisandre births to kill Renly and Courtney Penrose are his sons, black shadows created by sorcery. And as we come to the close of our analysis of another Stannis-centric episode, it's uncomfortable to draw the comparison between Stannis and yet another villain in A Song of Ice and Fire. But here we are. The extremes of fire and ice have brought shadows into this world, and the shadows come to dance, my lord. Dance, my lord. Dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord. Stay, my lord. Stay, my lord. Always love it when you pull out the, the patch face songs. Always got to play all the hits. <laughs> but yeah, that's spooky. I love that comparison to Craster. That's kind of the, the territory we're verging on here. But as with Craster's Keep, it's just, it's being done in the background. It's behind closed doors because that's power taking hold of it. And that's what makes it all the more powerful and lets your mind kind of fill in the gaps as we're, we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. So shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, as we've been, you know, kind of hinting at the whole time, a lot of this is set up for a storm of swords. Very very tightly and directly, feeling like it flows very naturally. Just as Stannis' conversation with Davos earlier in the chapter was in part laying the groundwork for the even more intense version of that conversation they will have on Dragonstone in A Storm of Swords Davos 4, 
The conversation here between Davos and Melisandre is a dress rehearsal for the even more intense version of this conversation that we'll have on Dragonstone in the Storm of Swords Davos 3 when Melisandre goes to visit Davos in his cell. It's a very similar chapter, the cave imagery, the womb, rebirth, hero's journey stuff, and that, that sense of, you know, an inquisition and a religious and philosophical debate, getting at what Melisandre thinks, getting at Davos's response. It's very much a follow-up, and I, I enjoy that kind of expansion in the Storm of Swords. And it also deals with the question of shadows and fires and the torch as well that Melisandre mm-hmm. carries down. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole idea about whether Davos is going to be left with the torch or be left alone in the darkness, which is something, again, we are talking about here in Davos's second chapter, where Melisandre says that Davos is lost in darkness. In Storm, she is going to leave him with a candle, with a torch, so to speak, in order to light his way and hopefully to bring him to the faith of her lore. Of course, thankfully for Davos and thankfully for us, Davos is never going to embrace the fire fully, if not ever at all. He's going to retain his faith in the faith of the seven, have a reborn faith of the seven. And that's uh, it makes it for a really interesting, compelling dynamic between these two and Storm. Because I think it like George takes this conversation we have here in Davos' second chapter in Clash of Kings and takes it all the way up to 11 in A Storm of Swords throughout all of Davos' chapters with the two interact. And I love it. It's one of my favorite dynamics in A Song of Ice and Fire. I agree. It's unexpectedly rich and it makes for... It's, it feels very very grounded and human, despite their, them talking in a kind of very stilted fashion about large, you know, abstract things. And it's a really a wonderful creation on George's part. <laughs> so taking us into the discussion portion of the episode, obviously the, the shadow babies are among the more kind of eye-catching, memorable magic acts in A Song of Ice and Fire, but they don't stick around, either as, as individual acts of magic or as part of the story. We never see them again after this, unlike the dragons who were kind of built up, you know, gradually in the background the whole time. The same with the White Walkers. Shade of the Evening pops back in via Euron after we see it uh, with, the, with the Warlocks of Karth, the Shadow Babies. They stay off stage, and I think I can say with near certainty I would be shocked if George really brought them back as a narrative element at this point. So, at this point, it, you know, leads us to ask... What's the deal with the Shadow Babies? <laughs> what what are they? Where do they come from? What are some influences on them? Where are they in the story at all if they're just going to drop off? We will visit it again in conversation, but we're never going to experience them physically. And like you, I'm with you, thinking that we're not going to see them on page in the Winds of Winter. God, I hope we don't see them on page in the Winds of Winter. What type of fuckery are they going to get up to up at the wall with all of Melisandre's powers and being a hinge of the world and all that sort of nonsense? So, the basics. What Melisandre does here is a phenomenon known in-universe as shadow binding. The only other character we've met referred to as such as Quaithe, though she has yet to demonstrate any such powers in this regard. For all that Melisandre declares the shadow babies to be creatures of light given birth by R'hllor, shadow binding does not appear to be synonymous with the faith of R'hllor. After all, Quaithe does not serve the Red God, and none of the other Red Priests we meet, like Thoros and Benero and Makuro, have anything to say about shadow binding. Of course, none of those priests possess wombs or vaginas, and judging from this chapter, I'm tempted to say you need those in order to practice shadow binding. <laughs> this seems to be just another way in which Melisandre has gone rogue. A lone wolf spreading God's word in opposition to the institutional Red Temple in Volantis, so she's taken on some potentially heretical beliefs. I think heretical beliefs are the right phraseology in the right context in order to evaluate Melisandre's beliefs, because Makoro only gives voice to the, quote, shadows one time in A Dance of Dragons, and it's not a positive connection. Tyrion asks Makoro whether he can see the identities of the people he glimpses in the fire, and he replies that he can only see their shadows, commenting that one, most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. Doesn't seem very positive from uh, Makoro's perspective when it comes to shadows, and of course he is almost certainly referring to Euron Greyjoy there. To put 
this in a religious context, Melisandre and her and her sect of Lorites functions as a sort of take, I would say, on Deva or a quote demon in Zoroastrian faith. And maybe we can see Melisandre's heresy to traditional Reloric worship in the thesis by a guy named Chris Gahn, who I believe was in the University of Michigan system. I actually read his thesis, really cool, called The Divas in Divas, Devas in Zoroastrian Scripture, which he said, I reject the Devas. The traditional confession of faith begins placing this duty squarely upon the shoulders of the Mazda worshiper. The Devas, 76, therefore, have from the beginning represented the opposition to the Zoroastrian religion a shadow that has followed the faith from its origins down the centuries. So perhaps in Orthodox Rolorism, shadows are regarded as evil, as demons, as creatures of darkness. But Melisandre has gone rogue on this practice and believes them to be creatures of light that she can draw powers from, as opposed to being just simply the emanations of darkness and evil that perhaps the Orthodox version of Rolorites believe in. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. She's drawing power from unorthodox areas. You know, Thoros drifted from the flock in one direction, that of the lapsed believer, and Melisandre seems to have drifted in the other direction, into more zealotry and power than her faith offered. She wanted to become a succubus of sorts, not merely, you know, lifting up messiah figures, but directly, you know, using them for power, which less in the vein of the literal witches of Macbeth, and more in the vein of Lady Macbeth herself. She journeyed to a shy by the shadow, and yeah, that name gives away where the power to birth shadow assassins comes from, the shadow, the nightmare city of the Far East, or rather just beyond the nightmare city as the world of ice and fire elaborates, talking about the shadow as this kind of uncertain liminal territory just beyond the shy where only the shadow binders dare tread. The shadow by a shy seems to be this like, quasi-sentient state of affairs surrounding the corpse city of Stygiae, a city whose name is referencing the river Styx. In other words, this is the gateway to death, an underworld from which few return. The equivalent, perhaps, to the land of always winter up north beyond the wall, heart of winter versus heart of darkness. These are the crossover points, where man becomes god, where the world is broken and remade. Melisandre, as she says, can't make any more shadows with Stannis because it's taken too much out of him. There is a cost to this. As you say, this is might be heretical in her faith for a reason. Davos refuses her out of horror, but she does not really take heart from that. She instead thinks that the power of the wall, the nearby heart of winter, when she gets up there, that's going to make for new and improved shadows. And once again, Melisandre's zeal to defeat the others and save the world prevents her from seeing them. Pre- prevents her from seeing them as her own face in that icy mirror. The god of the sun and the god of the moon, the god of summer and the god of winter. These must be brought into some kind of balance, not just one side winning. You can see clearly that Melisandre is the equivalent to Night's Queen here, journeying beyond the curtain of light and back, to win the heart of a fearless king of men and create nightmarish new children together. Stannis is playing the Night's King role, perhaps, in this way. Melisandre thinks she comes from light, but she actually comes from darkness. Same goes for the White Walkers, pale as snow, but associated with the long night and the darkness. So we are ground zero at this new crossover point, Melisandre's body, a portal between this world and something entirely... the other. (laughs) Yet humanity is not erased from this process, rather it is corrupted. And the corruption of childbirth is clearly the main thematic takeaway from the shadow births, that it's giving birth not to this, you know, this, this, this child you will love and cherish and world, but this nightmarish shadow that vanishes once its job is done. And our friend Lauren, a.k.a. Shakespeare of Thrones, has written very well about how the witch as an archetype inverts positive traits commonly associated with femininity. 
The crone's guiding wisdom becomes opaque riddles. The maiden's innocent loveliness becomes seductive temptation. The mother's nurturing support dries up and is poisoned in the kind of the three faces of the maternal god framework. Witches tap into both fears and hopes surrounding what happens when women break out of these roles while attaining new powers, magical or otherwise, and flip the script. We can clearly see that framework at play with Melisandre. She seduced and tempted Stannis with her opaque riddles, and that her quickened womb, the source of life, produces a nightmarish mockery of humanity that lives only to kill and then die. Her beauty and power go hand in hand with corruption, the loss of meaning. And by that, I don't mean that childbirth is generally a thing of sweetness and unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> childbirth is an ugly, messy, painful experience, and that's when everything goes right. Sometimes the fetus doesn't make it. Sometimes the process kills the mother. And sometimes the mother sinks into such a depressive state afterwards they can't even look at the kid. So the fact that the shadow birth is an ugly, messy, painful experience, that's not what marks it out as a corruption of childbirth, because that's just childbirth. The difference lies in the progeny itself. Hmm. We don't get details of how shadow birth works exactly. George likes to keep his magic occult and irrational, which I think is a good move. But presumably, Stannis and Melisandre have sex, and then she does whatever it is she learned from the shadow beyond a shy that makes the seed in her womb transform into smoke and grow massively. I don't know. I don't know the gestation period, but clearly it's not nine months. So the life for which one goes through the ugly, messy, painful experience of childbirth has been transformed, rotted, eaten away of all that makes life worthwhile, as we saw with Danny and Rago. We have lost the sweet and are left only with the bitter. The black resin left over from after humanity's striving burns out into ash. These are the remains of the fiery ladder. And, you know, for all that we're saying Melisandre is straight into heretical territory, you can't really blame her for, con for concocting a theological hierarchy in which the shadows serve the fire. At a metaphorical level, it makes sense that the shadows are just what's left over. It's just, you know, that's not necessarily a positive thing. <laughs> the sun is our source, the foundation of the life force. I think I'm with Melisandre there. The shadow, then, is our legacy, our imprint, what results from us standing before the sun, walking forth as an individual, blotting out its light, and shining our face on the world instead. Stannis is Robert's legacy, bound to his big brother by blood, even as he sets his face in the opposite direction, and he is obsessed in turn with his own legacy. As he says in the show, I will not be a page in someone else's history book. His desperate desire to claim his own legacy at whatever cost burns down that legacy. Renly hit this sore spot like a bullseye during the Baratheon bros standoff at Storm's End. How many sons do you have, Stannis? Well, that's right, none. This rot, this decay, this blank future with no foundation, just dust between your fingers, undercuts proud patriarchs like Stannis, or Tywin for that matter, that, that haunting sense that's all going to turn to literal smoke and literal dust and there's going to be no one to carry it on you see that haunting all kinds i think of, of of tough masculine culture and codes you see that a lot in in gangster movies in the godfather how that becomes kind of michael's guiding obsession mm -hmm. or that line in in the departed when uh, when matt damon confronts jack nicholson is that what this is all about all that killing and all that fucking and no sons Robert had too many kids little seeds sown everywhere while his garden at home was co-opted by the lannisters Stannis has too few. These are his sons, his legacy, the corrupted form of a human, an imprint, a scorch mark, 
A legacy of fear that vanishes. This is what Catelyn feared Jon Snow would be like. Hmm. It's a corruption of what it means to be a person. You're born a shadow of your parents. You stagger around blindly, you kill, and then you die. That's what it all amounts to. Stannis will sacrifice his only living child to Melisandre's god. And when the shadows lengthen in the dark, he will have no sons to comfort him, to provide him with the hope of the future. He left his sons here at Storm's End, and they vanish, leaving only their own legacy of wonder and terror. Kinslang too, man. If you think Mm -hmm. about it, if they are part of Stannis' seed and what comes out uh, of the union between Melisandre and her shadowbinding ability and Stannis' seed, we'll call it that, is a son of Stannis' that rises up to kinslay his brother Renly and one who goes and kills Courtney Penrose. We'll use that neutral term there. This is also hinting at the future, as you're alluding to, about what happens with Shireen as well. Stannis is willing to sacrifice his sons, similar to how Craster is willing to sacrifice his sons, to a greater purpose, to what he perceives to be a greater purpose, survival. Craster believes that he is the person that needs to survive the White Walkers and survive in the frozen north. Stannis believes he has to survive the coming war of the Five Kings and the new war for the dawn that he at some level knows is going to be erupting around him and he believes himself to be a Zora High wielding the sword of heroes to get that sword of heroes to become that to be, get that sword of heroes to become that hero does Stannis have to sacrifice his own soul to sacrifice his own daughter to win against those that would bring the apocalypse to the world to those who would hold Storm's End when Stannis really wanted that castle real bad before he went on to King's Landing Shadow Babies are a shortcut. They are a way for Stannis to kind of go cut through the Gordian Knot, but in the worst possible way. It allows for Stannis to win Storm's End. He takes the castle thereafter. Elwood Meadows surrenders the castle to Stannis Baratheon and his army, and is now a sworn man to Stannis Baratheon. And by the end of A Dance of Dragons, is one of the few soldiers who are still loyal to Stannis and still holding the castle. But will it be worth it in the end? Is Are Shadow Babies actually worth it? I can't speak really to the metaphysics of shadow binding of what actually happened between Stannis and Melisandre, but I do find the emotional questions between what Stannis is doing here and utilizing shadow babies extraordinarily compelling. And I think that compelling aspect of it is derived from the character of Stannis, the character of Melisandre, and the person of Davos who is watching it all go wrong when he felt for so long that he had been done, he had finally done the right thing, had advanced his family, and is watching his own liege fall by the wayside and toss his heart into the fire. Mm, yep, I think you you exactly captured the dynamic there. It's it's pushing your your story in terms of in, in the direction of heroism and villainy at the same time, and you end up with the wages of both, and it's just this horrible uh, complication and confusion, and it's you know all sound and fury that leaves nothing behind. And yeah, it's just the the shadow baby stands in for that. Just this this kind of avatar of of how it all just kind of falls apart through Stannis's fingers and the, the thing he wants most to leave behind something to leave behind something that will last is the, is the thing that will always be denied him always denied him and yet will be driving him forward beyond reason beyond reason as as Asher will point out in a dance of dragons and I think that is about wrapping us up for this analysis on a Clash Kings Davos 2 part 4 as always thank you so much for listening please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts Google Play SoundCloud Podbean Spotify anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. 
can follow us on Twitter at NotaCastASOIAF or shoot us an email at NotaCastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maryball, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Cunnington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of the Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, and our newest High Lords, that's High Lords plural, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, and Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil. So thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, oh, High Lords and Ladies as always, and welcome to Lord Andrew and Ryan Noy. Yeah, thank you all very, very much. We really appreciate your guys' patronage, and welcome to Andrew and Brian. Uh, loved your messages. They were very, very kind, and uh, it's always really good to have more high lords and more high ladies on our, on our not our small council, but in our, our, in our court, so to speak. So, join us next week as we finally, at last, tackle a Clash of Kings Tyrion 9 Part 1. Yes, you heard that right. Another multi-part series about another chapter in a Clash of Kings in which Tyrion confronts some minor unrest, very, very minor, on the streets of King's Landing and dispatches with it very, very easily, if I remember correctly. It'll be just fine, no complications whatsoever. And yes, we're stepping back to uh, deal with the Clash of Kings Tyrion 9. We're going to do that in two parts over the next couple of weeks. It'll be enjoyable to get back into those. And then after that, since the next chapter in line will be uh, would be John 5, which we already dealt with uh, t- together in John 4 and 5, we'll be going on to Tyrion 10. So we'll go to Tyrion 9 in a couple of parts, then Tyrion 10, then proceed on normally into uh, Catalan 6, I believe, is after that. So uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. It's another great chapter. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be so much fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you guys, some of y'all literally, next week.